welcome back once again. It is Radio Free Acton, and I am Mark Vandermoss, the host of the podcast of the Acton Institute. Glad to have you along today, and we've got a good one lined up for you today. Uh, as you will recall, if you are a regular listener of our podcast, a couple episodes back, we featured a couple of guests who had been involved in the controversy section of the Journal of Markets and Morality. Now, if you're not familiar with the journal, that's the academic journal of the uh, Acton Institute. And uh, as we at, at the Institute here are celebrating our 20th anniversary, the, the journal is something that we've done almost from the beginning. And, um, and so uh, if you're interested in that, please head over to Acton's website, check out the publications link. You can uh, investigate the Journal of Markets and Morality a bit more. But one of, the, one of the regular features of the journal is a section called Controversy, where we essentially invite two uh, people of an academic persuasion to come in uh, and have what, a, what amounts to a written debate over uh, a given topic. A couple, uh, uh, a couple episodes of the podcast ago, we featured uh, the participants in a uh, controversy over the proper Christian stewardship of art. Turned out very interesting, and we wanted to do it again. And in uh, the newest issue of the journal, there is another controversy on a topic that is very central to the Christian life. And anyone who is interested in the health of the church and the health of Christianity would want to really think about the issues that were raised when we deal with the topic of secularism, or more specifically, how should Christians engage in the public square? Should we be overt about our Christianity? Should we be wide open about it? Or should we be a bit more reserved? Should we hold back and uh, keep the, the things of the church to the church and uh, the, sort of separate them out from the things of the world or the, the broader secular society in, public, in the public square? With us today are the two gentlemen who engaged in the controversy in the uh, new issue of the Journal of Markets and Morality. On the phone, joining us from uh, King's College in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, is Jonathan Molesic. He is a professor there, author of the book Secret Faith in the Public Square, an Argument for the Concealment of Christian Identity. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. And sitting across from me in the Acton Studios is, I love calling it that, by the way, the Acton Studios. It makes it sound so good. Hunter Baker, the author of a book released last year by, uh, I should say in 2009, by uh, Crossway Books, The End of Secularism. He's a professor at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. Hunter, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. And since radio is the theater of the mind, I would just like to say I'm really enjoying these palatial studios and the golden microphones. Yes, the, the, uh, the, wide, uh, the wide array of windows that we have looking over the, the fabulous Grand Rapids, Michigan skyline is, uh, Jonathan, it's, just, it's sad that you can't be here to see this yourself. No, I, I, I miss it uh, I, very much. And, I can you know, imagine. Um, uh, equally, you know, my, uh, my palatial office uh, <laughs> on the banks of the Susquehanna River. Yes, uh, I can imagine the large mahogany desk that you're sitting behind even now. Right, yeah, I, and I hope that you know the, my attendants who are fanning me and uh, <laughs> feeding me grapes. Okay, uh, I think we, I know, think we've crossed a line somewhere here. Somehow we've gone into the unbelievable. Now, <laughs> let's let's get to the topic at hand. And, and uh, we discussed beforehand. I want to start uh, by turning to uh, to you, John, and uh, in your book, uh, which I, I've read, I, I've made it through about uh, I, I would say eighty five percent of it. It's been really good so far. The, the problem I have is I read too many books at once, so I didn't finish it before the podcast. My uh, to my everlasting shame, but um, That's all right. very good book. And and one of the things that you one of the points you make is that you are you make your case as strongly as you can in your book because it is underrepresented. You you feel in in the uh, academic world and in the world of 
uh, of, uh, of uh, well, I should say in the world of Christian public engagement. Um, there really aren't a lot of people making the argument that Christians should uh, conceal their Christian identity when they're engaging in public. And so I want you, if you would be so kind, to take a couple of minutes here and just give our listeners an idea of of what it is that you're getting at what is the what is the the thumbnail sketch of your argument that whereby you argue that christians should should conceal their christian identities sure uh it, it's even though uh it is a, a a position that's not articulated much right now um it has been a, i'd say a strong minority position uh in the christian theological tradition uh, even going as far back as the sermon on the mount uh, you know, we see in Matthew 5, Jesus say all of the visible things that Christians do that make them distinctive. Um, but then uh, in Matthew 6, uh, all of a sudden he says, oh, by the way, don't be like the hypocrites and uh, broadcast uh, your faith and your prayer and your actions before others. Uh, you know, go into your, your closet and, and pray to the Lord in secret, uh, pray to uh, the Father in secret. Um, but in in a nutshell, uh, my argument is that in the current conditions of uh, American public life, encompassing not just politics, but uh, the, the workplace, the marketplace, uh, the media, and so forth, the uh, temptation that Christians have to sort of make, uh, to, to uh, profit, uh, in a sense, from their Christian identity, to publicly uh, proclaim their Christian identity, and as a result, to uh, gain public benefits from uh, a Christian public who, in a lot of places, um, is really eager to reward Christians for being publicly visible as uh, as Christians. Um, my idea is that the way things are constituted right now in American public life, um, the temptation to sell off Christian identity um, for some kind of public reward is so great uh, that it results often in the distortion of Christian identity. Mm -hmm. um, Christian identity is transformed more into a, a brand identity or a logo uh, rather than uh, the being you know, the byproduct of um, a genuine faith. And so my argument uh, is that we're at a point where we should really consider uh, concealing Christian identity uh, in order to, to sort of break that temptation and break that, uh, those conditions that cause, well, things like, you know, you turn on the television and there's, you know, this, uh, these commercials from uh, Rand Paul and uh, his, uh, his opponent, Jack Conway, you know, trying to show that, well, well I'm, I'm the real Christian. In yeah. Place and, yeah. You know. You're you're right on that count. There, there, that has in that Rand Paul Jack Conway election that's gotten a little uh, a little sharp on the issue of Christianity. Um, let me let me follow up on your statement, and I, I think that um, there there would be an easy way uh, to sort of uh, uh, on the surface misconstrue your argument. So I want to I want to ask you a couple of things here just to kind of clear, clarify for people what you're talking about. Um, what you're saying is, are you saying that a person, say, who is a Christian, um, should totally separate the the ideas that make up their uh, their Christian faith, the principles that they that they learn in church? Uh, are they not to at all have those things apply when they go out of the church? Are they to completely separate and, and almost live two lives? 
No, that's not at all what I'm saying. Um, I'm simply saying that Christians not publicly uh, proclaim uh, those principles uh, when they are applying for a job, uh, running for political office, uh, trying to, uh, you know, advertise their business or something like that. Uh, I, I certainly hope that Christian politicians and and job seekers and um, uh, and and business persons will exhibit uh, Christian uh, ideals and, and principles in their actions. I just don't want to to see them sort of flaunting that. Gotcha. That. And I think that's one of those things that, that uh, that's one of the easiest ways that the argument could be misconstrued, that, right. that you're arguing for a radical separation of Christian values from life. That's not it. Christians right. should still be Christians. Right. They just shouldn't be so overt about it, per se. Exactly. Okay, okay. Well, uh, that, that, uh, having that under our belt, let's turn to, uh, let's turn to Hunter Baker. Uh, and Hunter, uh, you're as I as I mentioned at the beginning, your book is the end of secularism. Um, another good book, and this one I think uh, available actually in the Acton Bookshop as well. Both these books available uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble dot com, all over the place. You can pick them up, and both worthwhile. But Hunter, um, I want you to uh, just again a thumbnail sketch of the argument that you lay out in your book and in in the controversy here as well. Well, I just like to begin. I, you know, uh, Jonathan's written this book. I would it would serve my purposes if he would now write a book encouraging the secularists to take their faith to, uh, <laughs> in private. <laughs> okay, I understand. Yeah, that's I, would, the... <laughs> I would I would love to see them recede and um, be more humble about their secularism. Uh, <clears throat> but seriously, I I uh, I think that even though I disagree with uh, with Jonathan's uh, argument, I think that it's I think it's very valuable. I think it is. Uh, yes. I think it's insightful. Uh, I think that um, that the 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 great purpose of it for anybody who who were to read the book, whether they agree or disagree, I think it would encourage a uh, a healthy self criticism for people in the church, uh, especially for evangelicals. Um, I think that one of the biggest disagreements that we have probably is is by way of. Um, just sort of our assessment of the the factual situation, and of course that's you know it makes it hard to resolve. I mean, I guess we could take a lot of Gallup polling information or something like that. But my my basic view is is that uh, I think that that most people in America living living in this country probably uh, feel like they are they are nervous about bringing their faith into the public square. Uh, that you know the average person working in a corporation, you know that they that they probably feel they're risking something. You know they'll be thought of as as some sort of a fool or some sort of a religious zealot uh, if they are real open about their faith at work. Um, and I, I think that's kind of borne out by by the treatment of Christians when we look at pop culture, uh, like situation comedies or, or things like that. I think that uh, there's sort of a caricatured view of Christians out there. And uh, that most people are really, are really afraid to be seen in that way, and uh, it probably would be relieved to hear Jonathan say this and, and kind of say, you know, good, you know, kind of, a, yeah, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, thank you, you know, I, I, re I really would rather uh, keep it safe, and I, I think that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not urging people to be sort of like a a public fool for Christ, although there's probably some virtue in that. Um, I, I I really believe that the Christian faith has. Uh, value not only kind of devotionally or, or spiritually, but there's there's also like some 
some real civilizational, societal value um, that there's something there's it's worth appealing to that authority uh, in a number of contexts. Jonathan, I wonder. Uh, one of the things that that I that I wondered as as I was reading through the controversy, as I read your book, how do, how do you approach uh, the question of? Let me think of the best way to put this. The question of Christ, Christian, of course, are supposed to be salt and light in in the world and in the culture. How, how do you how do you approach the question of say evangelism? Uh, how should Christians go about that? Obviously, we're called to go out and and preach the gospel to the nations and and there should be uh, more to that than say uh, just that 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 shouldn't be a role that's just reserved for uh, the ordained clergy I think we could probably agree on that um, what what's uh how should Christians uh, proclaim their faith if if there is, is there room for that uh, I, I do think so uh, although perhaps in um some unusual ways, uh, or at any rate, ways that, that have um, not become obvious to us in, uh, you know, a kind of era of media saturation where, you know, we, we like to, I mean, not just Christians, but everybody likes to um, get out and, and put their message out in the most sort of uh, blatant way possible. Sure, That's we live in the era of Facebook. Right, exactly. You know, to the point where our our public culture is just this crazy cacophony uh, of competing voices. And uh, one of my worries is that the the Christian uh, perspective, that Christian voices, are just kind of seen as, oh, those are the people shouting over there about Christianity, and we got fifteen other people shouting about fifteen other things over here. And well, you know, they're all shouting. Yeah. Um, and my my worry is that. You know, by trying to compete in that kind of environment, then you know the real gospel message just sort of gets lost. Um, that didn't totally answer your question, though. Um, <laughs> but I think that there are uh, other um, means of evangel- evangelizing other than simply, you know, either either going on TV or the radio or going on a street corner and, and putting a, a tract in somebody's hand. Sure. Um, you know, the the early Christians were. Um, their greatest form of evangelism was simply love. Um, that it's it's through works of charity uh, that uh, one can make God's love known um, on on that real palpable you know personal level. Um, you know, there's this saying that's often attributed to St. Francis: preach the gospel always, occasionally with words, sure. or mm-hmm. or with words when necessary. Um, and you know, the the idea of you know Francis was that well you. You love everyone all the time, and that's a form of preaching the gospel. And it doesn't necessarily require, you know, the the um, kind of you know public proclamation. Sure. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I, I I think of a question as well for for you, Hunter. the The idea of um, um, since I've been young and aware of the political arena in the United States, there have been a lot of Christian organizations, a lot of Christian uh, "Quote unquote Christian leaders um, who have gone into the public square and and in in a, in a lot in some cases they've just made fools of themselves um, in, in part in the way that they've uh, they've approached the public squares and the, and 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 uh, used the gospel in in I guess we can say inelegant ways to uh, to to try and make a point or to push an agenda or something like that." Um, 
isn't there some truth to the fact that you can go out and be a Christian, be wide open, and really do some damage to the church and to, to into the name of Jesus Christ in the public square? Yeah, there's there's no question of that. Um, you know, a big part of there's definitely sort of a an area of agreement between Jonathan and I, even though kind of in principle we've disagreed. Uh, I certainly look at the situation. I kind of. I, my reaction to to his complaint, you know, if I were sort of the judge and I were listening to what he says, my reaction would be to sort of kind of meet him halfway and say, say that what what I see is as a need for better engagement, uh, a need for a more sophisticated engagement. People need to realize that when they're going to uh, bring Christ, bring the faith into the public square, that there is a heavy, heavy burden uh you know, there's a heavy responsibility and that, you know, they don't, you know, it's like a, a child kind of kind of knows one thing and wants to go around shouting it and, and acting like an expert and being all superior. Uh, that's the way some people are about their faith. Um, and, you know, and that's obviously something to be avoided. And, you know, maybe in the church we need to train people to understand that. Um, another thing that I would say, which I think it's part of where Jonathan's critique leads, is a direction we need to go uh, which is in the direction of holiness. I think there is a, a really inadequate uh, appreciation of holiness in the American church today. And so while while I do think there, the majority of people are sort of disinclined to bring their faith into public square, it's, it's also true that there are a number of people who find that fairly easy. And um, and they like to do it, and they you know they they like to wear like a confrontational Christian T-shirt or you know the bumper sticker, uh, you know sometimes kind of stupid. You know God said it, I believe it. That settles it. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and 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 sometimes people don't need to realize you know that by doing that that maybe they think they've di- they've sort of dispensed their duty toward God, uh, but in reality there are, there are major things in their life that need to be addressed, major lordship issues. Uh, that they have they have avoided by talking loudly about their faith. Yeah, in 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 your point here, it it leads to something that's a a, a pretty sound a solid theme in 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 uh, in Jonathan's book. And Jonathan, you talk about this a lot. Is the the way that once Christianity becomes sort of the default religion of a culture, it is under threat of being severely watered down, corrupted, uh, made into something that it really isn't because okay. people become Christians to fit into the culture. Exactly, yeah. You know, this this what you've just brought up is a big tension that is that is constantly there. You look at the history of of church and state in the West and the tension is this. You're always you're always kind of between the the comprehensive church which pulls in everyone right but if you have the comprehensive church then it 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 almost has to be watered down right it yeah. has to be it has to be stretchable enough big enough for everybody to fit inside of it you sort know? of the lowest common denominator exactly such that the the political community and the church community are the same and that has negative effects on the church community and then the of course the other side of the spectrum is the the regenerate church where everyone is there voluntarily, and then that church is free to be, you know, pretty pure, pretty intense, but that has the effect of alienating a large part of the culture. And, you know, it's kind of that tension between the two, you know, sort of the the regenerate church and the comprehensive church that you see going back and forth 
throughout history. And that's that's what we're always fighting with. We want to pull in more people. We want to get more people involved. But at the same time, we want to we want to maintain our purity. And I think Jonathan's book is really kind of highlighting uh, that basic tension that exists. I wonder. Yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead, Jonathan, please. No, I, I just yeah, I want to say that I, I think that's exactly what I am getting at, and I think that that's um, you know the very kind of problem that we face in America, uh, American uh, culture, and, and particularly American Christian culture today, uh, is that you know in spite of our governmental official uh, secularity, unofficially, and this is something that Weber, you know, Max Weber, the sociologist, pointed out um, more than 100 years ago, unofficially, um, Christianity is a kind of medium for our public culture. So, um, and, and where we still live with that tension uh, in the 21st century. Well, I wonder if, if either of you has a question for the other that you, you're just dying to ask. I don't want to monopolize the questions here. We, I, I'm not sure it's a question so much as a, a reaction to something that was said. You know, we, we talked about uh, kind of the way people have gone into the public square and have engaged. And I guess one thing that I would say is that, um, you know, being a person who, who studies politics, I view a lot of our engagement in the public square, especially since the early 70s, um, not as something that the church really necessarily wanted to do or set out to do, so much as I think it's been um, provoked. Uh, I think there's a pretty strong argument to be made that uh, a number of of sort of cultural values and, and, and kind of, uh, I guess, things that we almost assumed were agreements uh, about things like the, the sanctity of life, uh, particularly bioethics being kind of the strongest one, but there, but there are other issues too, like about marriage, um, that that there's been a feeling that those values, things that are sort of central to Christian civilization are under attack, and therefore people in the church, if they're going to be faithful, they kind of have to come out and meet that. Uh, I mean, so I guess that my question to Jonathan would be, you know, do you, do you not see this sort of uh, big sweep of Christians into the public square since the 70s uh, and a big desire to kind of be seen and counted as, as partially it's sort of a, a defensive reaction to... Uh, kind of a, a different set of values and kind of an aggressive secularism uh, pushing pushing the faith out of the public square? Uh, I don't know. Um, maybe. I mean, you, you'd... Uh, and, you know, I don't know, forgive me if this is uh, a bit unfair, um, but, uh, you know, you use the word, uh, uh, word Christian civilization, and whenever anyone uses a, you know, a word like Christian civilization, I get a little worried. Um, you know, because there I see that uh, you know, that very close connection uh, between Christianity and public culture, um, which you know, students of um, uh, the theologian Stanley Hauerwas and I don't count myself uh, among them, but you know, they talk about Constantinianism. Uh, you know, Constantine tried to establish uh, a, a Christian civilization, um, and so. You know, whenever I hear, you know, people talk about this, well, you know, we had this great consensus one time uh, about, you know, Christian principles and civilizational principles and how they matched up, uh, and now that that consensus is under threat. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I wonder how much, um, you know, that consensus is, is itself the, the the product of, you know, a kind of watering down of Christianity and, and uh, kind of alliance of Christianity and 
often you know pretty bad and unchristian state forces um, now to this particular case you know maybe that's uh, that that's not you know entirely accurate and that's why I asked you to forgive me if I'm being a little unfair but um, that's the sort of worry that I have that you know appeals to you know great civilizational consensus is um, are, are a little bit of the problem that I'm hoping to address see I would uh I kind of I, I really I don't have a problem with with sort of a reference to Christian civilization uh, and I, yeah, I don't feel like it's unfair to, to for you to kind of refer to it the way you did um, but you know I think that for instance and this is not something to get into now I think that Constantine gets a bad rap uh, you know if you, you can look at it in my book or there's a new book by uh, Peter Lightheart about Constantine and kind of really who he was and what he did but um, with regard to Christian civilization um, I think that there's that there, that Christian civilization, for example, is superior to uh, say the Greco-Roman civilization that preceded it. You know, is much less merciful, uh, much more harsh, uh, probably more proud. You know, do things like like expose infants who are unsatisfactory on the edge of town, things like that. Um, and also, when I think about Christian civilization. Um, I always tell students that I think that Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, letter from Birmingham Jail is like the cherry on top of Western political theory, and that's that's because he's kind of he's going back, and you know he's making a public appeal, right? And and he's talking about uh, he's talking about the Bible, of course. You know, he talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he also he's talking about Augustine and Aquinas. He's referencing Christian civilization. He's kind of saying. This is this is this is kind of the the basis of your civilization, and you're being unfaithful to that in the way that you're treating us. So I think that it's I think that it's valuable to have something called Christian civilization and and to see Christianity as somehow an organic part of the culture, so that somebody like Martin Luther King can appeal to that. Right, and you know I I sort of want to um, I don't know if I it, it's. Yeah, you know, I, I sort of want to, you know, in, in a sense, make an exception for, uh, you know, the kings of the world. Um, those Political the theorists want I, to do that too. What's that? Political theorists want to do that too. They want to say, well, it was okay when he did it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but my, uh, I keep talking about my my worries. I'm a deeply sort of worried person in this conversation. But uh, my worry is that, uh, you know, the the Rand Pauls and the Jack Conways also want to claim exceptions for themselves and say, well, you know, I'm basically like Martin Luther King. Uh, you know, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, uh, yes, you know, Mr. Conway, are you uh, appealing to, you know, Christian civilization? And he's answered probably like, well, you know, what the heck? Yeah, why not? You know, if he'll get me a few more votes, yeah, I'll appeal to Christian civilization, you know. Um, so it, it sort of goes back to this idea that, yeah, we need, you know, better, smarter, more thoughtful, more cautious, more careful um, witness, uh, and, and, you know, less sort of loose talk, which is what we see so much of, I think, in our public culture. You know, Jonathan, just something I have to bring up. I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're close to running out of time, but I was driving to the airport uh, on the way here for a conference, and I saw a church, I think it was a Methodist church, with a big sign out in front and they were advertising a meeting about quote secret church, oh, and I, I had to wonder, you know, were they 
I had to wonder if it was like, you know, if you have kind of provoked a movement or something like that. <laughs> what, Although, was, there, was there a note on the bottom, see the secret faith in a public square available at Amazon.com? <laughs> or... It sounds, no, it sounds like it could be. pretty funny because, yeah, I mean, of course, the whole idea of advertising secret church, uh, you know, is sort of bizarre. Although bizarre in a way that, you know, I really like. I like, you know, <laughs> I like that kind of weird stuff, so. I think that one thing that we can come away from, uh, if if there's one thing that I think both of you would argue is is important, it's uh, that Christians should be very careful and thoughtful mm-hmm. in how they engage the public square, one way or the other. Uh, if they're go, if you're going out there as a Christian, you need to uh, you need to really be aware of of who you are, what you're doing, what you're representing, and making sure that you're uh, you're being a good representative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Absolutely. Well, guys, uh, unless either of you has uh, has something else you wanna you wanna bring up, I think this is a good point to say uh, thank you very much. And uh, the books again, I want to run through these, and I, I, I can't emphasize enough. The, both of these uh, these gentlemen have very thoughtful arguments. I, I can say for myself, Jonathan, I, I was I was I was actually surprised at how much of your book I, I resonated with. There are some very very good and thoughtful arguments in here, and I would commend it to uh, all of our listeners. Uh, Secret Faith in the Public Square, an Argument for the Concealment of Christian Identity. There's some worthwhile stuff in here that you need to uh, that you need to read about. And uh, check it out, Amazon.com, Barnes Noble, anywhere where they sell books online. Do that. Uh, you will be better off for it. And, uh, Jonathan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. This is Jonathan Malisic uh, is the name, if you want to look for the author name. Uh, Hunter Baker, I'm so glad you were in town and could, uh, could be in studio with us. Thank you so much. Yep, thank you. I enjoyed it. And we're back again on Radio Free Acton, and through the magic of recording technology and the fantastic internet, uh, I'm now at Derby Station in East Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you have never been to an Acton on Tap event, we just wrapped one up here. Uh, we all gather together, sort of an inf- informal setting, invite the general public to come on in, and we bring in a speaker to talk on a topic of interest, and tonight's speaker here at Derby Station was uh, John Armstrong, who was talking about uh, the topic of ecumenism and ideology. Uh, John, thanks for taking some time to talk to me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I, I have, uh, I'm happy to be associated with Acton. Happy to, to do Acton on Tap. And yeah, was it an enjoyable event for you? It was. It was. I, we we had. This is the first of December. We had our first snow of the winter. <laughs> I think it t- uh, tampered with our crowd a bit because the roads are. It's like they have no salt trucks in Grand Rapids yet. They're not ready for this. It, you know, you know, it's the, the first snow of the winter always throws everybody off. It, I, it throws everybody off. We had somebody who came from Benton Harbor, <laughs> which is a long way, for I, those of you that don't know Michigan, and said it took them several hours to get here because of the highway. So, But a worthwhile trip, I'm well, sure. I hope so. I yeah. No, it, t- it took me an hour to go three miles tonight, which is why you're listening to a short interview with John Armstrong instead of listening to his actual presentation. Tell so, him why, because of what you did. <laughs> well, I, I, I went out and actually bought a copy of his book and thought, <laughs> you know, I've got four, th- half hour, 45 minutes. I can make it in time to get the mic set up. I was wrong. Well, here we are anyways. And let me, let me ask you a couple of questions about, about the topics of your presentation tonight. First of all, 
you are a champion of ecumenism, of authentic Christian ecumenism. Why don't you talk a little bit, give us a definition of what is good ecumenism. I think that a lot of people really don't understand the concept or are worried that it means abandoning uh, essentials of, of doctrine in order to work with people. Talk a little bit about it. What is an authentic, genuine Christian ecumenism? Well, I think the place to start is to recognize that the earliest Christian creeds and confessions were called ecumenical creeds. Most mm -hmm. people don't realize that unless they're, well, if they're Catholic or Orthodox, they might. But, but they were called ecumenical creeds because they were expressions of the holism of the Christian church. Mm -hmm. So the word ecumenical means whole or full. It's, it's, a, it's a good word. It comes from the early church. It comes from the Greek. And, uh, but the recovery of ecumenism post-Protestant Reformation, um, you find seeds of the ideas of it in some Protestants, especially Richard Baxter in England. Uh, but you don't find a, a sort of broad international global uh, attempt to do ecumenism until the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. And Protestant ecumenism grew up particularly among missionaries and Protestant workers who were in non-Christian cultures, India, for example, where you would have a Methodist church, a Lutheran church, and a Baptist church in the midst of a Hindu culture, and the people would say, what is this? Are there three kinds of Christians? And they realized they had a real problem in communicating the gospel because it looked like there were three gospels. Sure, yeah. And so that led some shall I say, entrepreneurial missionary thinkers to begin to address the question of the oneness of Christ in the mission of the church. In 1904, 1905, even uh, uh, 1910 in Edinburgh, Scotland, there was a, a huge event that was, by the way, re-celebrated 100 years later this year in Edinburgh. Uh, and that Edinburgh Missionary Conference was sort of a, a part of the foundation of what we call ecumenism. And here's what's important about that short history. It was, remember I said, it was gathered around the common concern to present Christ in a way that showed people that Christians were not enemies of each other, but were proclaimers of the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But what happened was this missions movement of ecumenism by the middle of the 20th century began to converge with another movement that brought together what most people now know of as ecumenism when they hear the word, and thus they think of organizations like the National Council of Churches which in, for, for my money, I would be very happy if, if in most cases it just went out of existence uh, because it promotes mostly ideological agendas, which is what I talked about tonight and we'll get to in a minute. It promotes mostly the ideology of the left that is, that is actually sometimes even neo-Marxism, mm -hmm. uh, certainly socialism, and it promotes these ideological interpretations of economics and society and government in the name of Christ through these organizations. So many Catholics and Protestants will hear this word ecumenism and say, ah, I reject ecumenism because that's what it is. Um, so there are two types of ecumenism, good and bad, if you wish. Yeah, and, and, um, and I, I think I think uh, the point you're getting at actually c comes down to the, we're talking about the title of your book, which yes. is Your Church is Too Small. Right. right. Um, it, it, when we think of ecumenism, it, it shouldn't be thought of in the context of these uh, left-wing political right. ideologies right. or economic right. ideologies. Nor That's should, not what it is. Right. Nor should it be thought of as the Christian right exactly. in the evangelical world. Yep. Because both end up being defined more by ideology than by the centrality of the gospel, the mission of Christ, mm -hmm. and what are common core 
convictions of historic Christianity. Sure. Why don't you talk a little bit about ideology? I know you have a definition of it that, yeah. that I think will be helpful to help people understand what you're getting yeah, at let me, let me give my definition because, as I said to you privately, uh, unless you define the word ideology, it's like Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. So I want to define it very carefully. The English word ideology actually refers to visionary theorizing, or as I write, to a systematic body of concepts, especially regarding human culture or life. So, for example, from the left, Marxism is an ideology. By the way, Karl Marx said Christianity is an ideology. Yeah. Um, so, so just so the, the listener understands, the word has been variously used. But I define it as this. I have in mind when I use the word ideology not only a body of systematic concepts, that is ideas, that's ideology, but I have in particular mind the integrated assertions, theories, and aims that constitute a socio-political program of some sort. That could be left, it could be right, but it is more a socio-political idea of framing life around these particular views of how society ought to function, how we transform society, how we use politics. That's where you get close to ideology, okay? It's also this idea of the socio-political program that I personally believe is so profoundly threatened the church in her mission and in her understanding and, and, and understanding of faith and ideology. A friend of mine, the late Donald Blash, a great Protestant theologian, said the relationship between ideology and Christian faith is a relationship that is extremely enigmatic. That means that it's a relationship that is filled with enigmas. I said tonight, quoting a politician, it's an enigma wrapped in a riddle. Mm -hmm. um, ideology is not easy to define, and yet it's the kind of thing, let me put it very simply, that when I smell it, I know it. <laughs> yeah. uh, when I see it, I, I see it. When I feel it, I feel it. Mm -hmm. um, for example, on the right, it can easily become the religion of nationalism, can easily become God and country, the flag and Christianity, sure. uh, how we treat symbols. I am a patriot. Patriotism is love of one's country. I'm an American patriot. Patriotism is not ideology, it's love of country. Yeah. But it becomes ideology when you begin to wrap the flag in the message of Jesus and say America is to be thought of as somehow the extension of the kingdom of God. Yeah, conflating the two. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And they cannot and must not be conflated. When they are, we have problems. In the mid-century, last century, it was the left after World War II that particularly conflated the ideology of Protestantism into leftist, leftist, and, and, and statist ideology. In the 1980s, when the Christian church from the conservative side decided to re-engage culture and come out of its public shell, its private shell, and said, look, faith is more than what's in your heart. It has public implications, mm -hmm. which was a wonderful thing to discover. And I agree with it totally. But the temptation was to put in its place a public ideology as gospel, as Christianity, which is what I think yep. we did in many cases. Now, what I said tonight was the implications of this conflation on the right are that people think that this, this especially in the secular media and the secular marketplace, they think that this Christian ideology of the far right is Christianity. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so they cannot hear the good news in many cases because they hear our ideology rather than our gospel. Sure. Mm -hmm. The same is true on the left. When you make the ideology of the left equal to the gospel, then the gospel becomes a set of, of particulars about how you systematize Christian faith to change governments, to, to create support for government policies that come from the church as the proponent. So what you actually do is you have people on the left 
arguing for the separation of church and state, but in actual fact they don't believe it because they want the state to be influenced by the church as they ideologically understand its influence. Yep. The same, of course, as I say, has happened on the right. Yep. So it, it, is, it, is, it is a serious problem. I quoted tonight from uh, Acton Research uh, fellow Jordan Baller, our friend who's over here behind us now yes. talking to a few friends, and this is something he says in his, his excellent book, Ecumenical Babel, and I'm going to quote him. Let our confession, he says, be not I follow Marx or I follow Hayek. I follow Rand or I follow Keynes, but rather together we follow Christ. Ultimately, our hope for unity lies not in ourselves or in any, any feeble human efforts, but in the power and providence of God who makes both us and you to stand firm in Christ. I wholeheartedly agree with that, uh, though I certainly wholeheartedly would rather people read Hayek than Marx. Oh, absolutely, um, yes. But having read both of them and even embraced ideas from Hayek that are good ideas, at the end of the day, there's the danger that Hayek begins to be associated with the good news of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, no, that, it, it, and I, I want to point out to folks, too, Jordan Baller's book is Ecumenical Babel. It's a great book, well worth a read, and, and I, you're, a, you're ordained in the uh, Reformed Church of America, Reformed correct? Church in America. I'm That's a member right. of an RCA church, and so when that book came out, uh, I, I picked up a copy myself. Jordan gave me a copy to review, and it, 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 it's, it's very good. Um, and hits on a lot of issues that are very visible in, in the RCA and a lot of Protestant denominations yes, yeah. today in terms of various confessions and things that are out there on the on, on the uh, the uh, denominational agendas of these churches. Um, I want to once again point out your book. Your church is too small. Uh, is this this was just recently released? Just the published last year. This year in yep. the spring of this year. Uh, published by Zondervan. Yep. And um, you can pick up a copy at your local bookstore. Um, Amazon.com. Amazon.com. BarnesandNoble.com. All the online retailers have it. Right. Your organization is Act Three. Act Three, which is an acronym for the words "Advancing the Christian Tradition in the Third Millennium," and our purpose is stated in our tagline, which is to equip leaders for unity in Christ's mission which is what the book's about. And uh, we're a small, uh, nonprofit mission based in the suburbs of Chicago, three of us on staff, and uh, we partner, particularly partner, with other Christian enterprises and leadership uh, think tanks and organizations to help work with them to put uh, our part of the larger puzzle, as it were, of the whole of the kingdom of God into the agenda of the church more effectively. Our part is this emphasis on ecumenism is basic and fundamental to the life of healthy Christianity, so long as that ecumenism is understood as focusing on Christ and the gospel. Mm -hmm. John, are you going to be at Acton University in 2011? I will be. I'll be teaching in June of 2011. Another reason for people to check out Acton University. So. I'm you, looking forward to reading your book. I think it's going to be a good challenge for me, and, and you have good. one more thing you want to yeah, say, I, I can want, tell. I want to also tell people about, since they're listening to this on the Acton website, Oh, you've got to plug check, your blog. They can chuck, check, chuck. They can check <laughs> us out. Cut that. They can check us out. It's late in the night uh, at www.act3online.com. Act3online.com. And then I have a daily blog that interacts with everything from college football to economics to social theory to ethics, to Christian doctrine. Now, I, I think there might be some people who aren't very ecumenical about college football well, at Acton. Well, they you might, might need to be. do they some work mean, on I that. Mean, but Jordan is somehow related to Michigan State. I think we might have some Notre Dame fans that are a little overboard as well. But I, I digress. But, but I, I went to the University of Alabama, roll tide, so I'm a diehard Alabama Crimson Tide fan. And a week ago when they lost to Auburn, I went into deep mourning. Uh, but other than that being Black Saturday after Black Friday, um, I'm okay. I'm over it. I'll deal with it. 
But the blog is is uh, is just my name with the middle initial www.johnharmstrong johnharmstrong.com. Daily, there's something there. Uh, lots of cool links to it of others, uh, video stuff, um, uh, and then my Facebook page, which is open to the public. Uh, I, I interact with Acton and all kinds of people on the Facebook page, yeah. so they're all out there. Well, I want to encourage you to check out John on his blog on Facebook. Check out Acton on Facebook as well. We're I, we're also on Twitter and everywhere else that you want to be online. We, we are too. And uh, John, I want to thank you again for for taking some time. Uh, I've enjoyed this, and I'm looking forward to reading the book. Thank you very much.